Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Life is good, brother. I just got home. I, I just saw you hours ago in St. Louis, and I just got back to Wyoming and got my gear all set up and ready to crank out a great show. Well, we are excited for a very special episode today. We're doing something a little different. We're going to do a little bit of story time with Eric, and we're doing it on a very special day. Today is, in fact, the 70th birthday of one of the most prolific wrestlers of all time, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. And we're going to Spend a little time today going down memory lane without going into a ton of detail. I'm sure there'll be a lot more nature boy episodes here on 83 weeks, but I want to take some broad strokes with you today, Eric. And I guess we should start off by saying happy birthday to the nature. Happy birthday, Rick. I, I got the invitation, uh, to go to the birthday party Friday in Atlanta and I just wanted to try to make it, but I just couldn't get back from LA in time to get out there. I wish I could have been there. It would have been fun to see Rick. It was fun. It was a star t- star studded event. Uh, you would have fit right in, but uh, we're hoping to celebrate him a little bit before Monday night raw tonight, because well, if history has told us anything about wrestling birthday parties, it might not end well for the nature boy. <laughs> what is it? Birthday parties and weddings are like the two things that just never turn out great. But, well, especially in wrestling, now, maybe in real life or we both hope so. Let's start from the beginning though. When did you first meet Rick? Would it have been in WCW when you were hired as an announcer? Yeah, it really it was like my second day in. Uh, I think I flew in on a Sunday and Monday morning. It was my first day on the job, really. Uh, Monday morning, I got in the car with Dusty and Doug Dillinger and Janie Engel. And we drove to my very first TV taping that was taking place. I believe it was in Anderson, South Carolina. And pretty sure that's where it was. And that's what I, Rick, I believe was probably leaving that week to go to WWF. So I, I walked up and, you know, certainly knew who he was, uh, introduced myself and he was, he was stretching actually, he was getting ready for a match that he was going to have not, not far from that point. And we chatted for just a minute and he was cordial as can be. And next thing I knew he was in WWF. Well, he, uh, he runs across you again when you're back here in 1993 and, and you're on your way up. And as the legend goes, he says that Bob actually asked him, Bob do that is what he thought of Eric Bischoff. And he wrote in his book, something like, I like Eric Bischoff. I think he's aggressive and smart. Something like that. When did, uh, when did you first hear the story that Rick maybe went to bat for you to Bob do? Uh, in that book, um, actually, was the first time I, I heard it referenced. And it's, you know, we've, we've crossed this path once or twice before where people that we both know and, and in some cases <laughs> extremely close to have vastly different recall of certain things. 
Uh, and I'll just chalk it up to maybe it was me. Maybe I got my timeline screwed up. I can't remember. When did when did Rick actually come back to to WCW? Do you recall that off the top of your head? Yeah, it would have been 93. Uh, and when he first comes in, he's not able to uh, work right away. So you guys did a series of flair, flair for the gold type segments with him. And then eventually, of course, he was back in action that summer. So Watts was gone, right? And... Flair was coming back. I'm trying to figure out who was, who was running the company at that he time. He had sort of, he tells a story where he had sort of made a deal to come back, but then once he gets back, Ole Anderson has the book and Ole makes some sort of comment like, um, after losing on TV, what good are you to me? Cause he did a loser leaves town match on Monday night. Raw. Yeah, and that's right. I recall that. So, so here's the deal that in that time frame, um, I would have probably already been tagged for that spot by Bill Shaw. So I'm just not sure, you know, maybe Rick remembers it better than I do. Maybe he's got his timeline a little messed up, but, um, yeah. Well, one of the things that you guys do, as we mentioned, is, is you have to find something for flair to do and, and flair for the gold sort of becomes the thing. I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but what did you think of the segment and what did Rick think of the concept? That was a dusty Rhodes idea. And that was Dusty's baby. And he was very, very proud of it. He loved directing it, producing it. Um, he, that was all Dusty Rhodes. And we all had fun because the, you know, the, you get Rick and Arn and, you know, the guys on stage, I mean, or on, on a set like that and you let them improv. All of them were great speakers, great talkers, great on the mic, had great charisma. So we, you know, it was fun. It was fun for Dusty to produce and direct it. It was fun for all of us to watch because the guys were having a blast doing it. And that's where we found Fifi. Yeah. And who would have known all these years later that, uh, that would go on to become his, uh, the love of his life and his wife who threw him that big surprise party the other day. So, you know, when he's back in 93, he pretty quickly gets into a program with Barry Windham, which is a natural given that he used to be a four horseman. And, uh, Rick, of course, eventually beats him for the belt at beach blast 93. And around that same time, they reform, uh, the horseman and it's flair and it's Arn. And interestingly enough, Tully Blanchard is supposed to be the guy but he's not. And instead it's Paul Roma. Were you involved in any of that process where it became Paul Roma, whether you were or weren't, what'd you think of that? I wasn't at all involved in it. Again, that was before I got involved on the wrestling operations side of things. That was really overseeing just the television production at that time. Um, so those decisions were made by Ole and dusty and Bob do or, Whoever made them, I don't know. I wasn't even involved in, in a lot of those decisions. As far as you know, my reaction to Paul Roma, um, I didn't really know him. He didn't le- make much of an impression on me. Um, it, 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 I was pretty underwhelmed by him. I didn't see it, quite honestly. I'm not really sure what the rationale was behind it. Were you in a decision-making position? Like, were you hiring and firing when the incident happened overseas with Sid Narn? Um, I don't know if I was overseeing wrestling operations at that time. I don't think I was. Did you fire Sid is the question? No. Okay. Well, there's just been lots written that, you know, maybe Arn had Rick 
look out for him a little bit in all of that. What was their relationship like at the time, Arn and Rick? It was extremely close. And I, you know, I'll go on record as saying, you know, if, if it wouldn't have been for Ric Flair, Arn Anderson would have gotten fired. There, there, there's not even a little bit of gray area in that statement. That's because I was involved in the discussions. While it wasn't my vote and I wasn't the person that got to decide who got fired and who didn't get fired, I was asked for my input. And as a part of that input process, um, I do recall having conversations with Rick and and probably influencing that decision a little bit as best I could from my perspective. And I wouldn't have done that had nothing for Rick. Well, it's interesting because as the fallout happens from that situation overseas, Flair finds himself in the main event of Starcade 93, which I think most people recognize as being one of his most memorable matches with Vader. Uh, what, what was your role in, in Ric Flair winning the world title over Vader at Starcade in Charlotte that year? And that, again, that would have been dusty. Um, it would have really all been dusty. So I didn't really have a role other than making sure it got on television or on pay-per-view. Um, and I'm joking a little bit, but no, creatively, I didn't have any control whatsoever. I wasn't even involved in any of the booking meetings or creative meetings of any kind. Dusty would, you know, Dusty worked, he had his own way of doing things. He didn't like, he didn't like, a lot of people around him when he was trying to write, when he was trying to come up with ideas or when he had an idea, he wanted to flush it out and develop it. He would go into his office and kind of lock the door and Janie would more or less be the palace guard, you know, to keep everybody from going in and out of there when he was working, you know, when he was creating while being creative, baby. Um, so I don't know what Dusty's real process was, but beyond knowing that, you know, he was the one making those decisions, I really wasn't involved in it. Let's talk a little bit about his relationship with dusty because since dusty passed, of course, everybody sort of says, oh, they were best of friends. But if you were paying attention back then, that's not really the case. And enough has come out from the Crockett's over the years and, uh, shoot interviews with dusty and Rick, where they were honest when dusty was still with us and they didn't always see eye to eye and it became a little more political. And maybe some of that was just uh, a professional rivalry and, you know, it sort of is what it is. And we've heard of those type relationships with a guy like Steve Austin and the rock or whatever. Can you speak to the sort of on again, off again, maybe even categorically a love hate relationship between Rick and dusty at different times? Yeah, I mean, I saw it firsthand and again, I know I've, I've said this a, a few times now, you know, when I first got to WCW as an announcer, dusty took me under his wing. You know, and I and I'm not sure why. I don't know if he just took a liking to me right off the bat, or wanted to figure out, you know, what I was all about. I don't know what his motivation was, but I just took it at face value and started riding with Dusty and spending a lot of time with him, and, and got to be pretty good friends with Dusty. We got along really well. Um, we both have, you know, similar interests and senses of humor and things like that. So. Um, I, I hit it off right away with Dusty, and as a result of that, th there was more than one occasion where we'd be up having cocktails after work up at the uh, the bar in the Omni Hotel in Atlanta there, and I'd hear all the stories, and it was evident that there was a lot of a lot of heat between the two of them. Um, they managed it, but 
you know, I heard all about it and I heard about it from Rick. But, they, you know, and I've said this before, you know, the politics in WCW when I got there. Now, keep in mind, I was trying to avoid them. I didn't I didn't want to have anything to do with politics of any kind. So when when people would start getting into office politics, um, I would tend to, you know, leave the room or go find something else to do. I just didn't want to be in anywhere near it. But as I got to know Dusty better, of course, we'd have more and more of those conversations. But there was a lot, of not not only between Dusty and Rick, but between Dusty and Jr. and Jr. and Tony. And I mean, it was a it was a cesspool of of politics when I first got there. And certainly, the relationship between Dusty and Rick was front and center in all of it. Talk to me a little bit about when Rick becomes involved in the booking a little bit. Now, Rick has always denied that he was never the booker, but everybody else says, no, Rick was definitely at different times, the booker, but most agree, including Rick, that he contributed to, for lack of a better word, the booking committee. What was his involvement as far as you recall in this era? And did you see sort of how that dynamic worked with Rick as part of a booking committee? I did. Um, we, you know, we put Rick, we put Rick in charge of the booking committee. Rick was the booker and, and I, you know, I don't recall exactly who was on that committee cause there was different people came and went, but you know, Greg Gagne, Mike Graham, you know, Bill Dundee was certainly in there. Um, there was a couple other people that would, would come in and out of that group from time to time. Uh, but it, it was really Kevin Sullivan, certainly, but it was really, you know, Rick, Rick was the booker it, it, at the end of the day, we all looked to Rick, you know, to let us know what we were going to do for TV that week or the, or the week after. In other words, other people involved and certainly Janie and other people, you know, taking notes and compiling all these different ideas into something that looked like a television format. And, it, you know, in the beginning, it, I think it worked really well. I mean, the, the, the chemistry between everybody on the committee from what I can remember was really pretty good, at least <laughs> to each other's faces. Um, it didn't really start getting challenging until, you know, probably four to six months after Rick started in that role. And I think the pressure got to him, you know, knowing Rick now, the way I know him, I would have never suggested he'd take that role because you, as you know, better than I do at this point, you know, Rick, Rick wants everybody to like him. No, Rick wants everybody to love him. And that's just not going to happen when you're in that role. And I, I could see it taking its toll on Rick and it was affecting him more and more. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the way a booking committee at the time worked, because, you know, when you're, when you're referencing, you know, Rick and, you know, what he, you know, sort of aspires to do in terms of getting along with everybody and being friendly with everybody that makes it an impossible position, but it's also nearly impossible for me to imagine nature boy, Ric Flair, just clocking in and clocking out at an office every day. What was the regular routine? Like, you know, if he was the booker and he's holding booking committee meetings, like you're in the office, what's, what's Rick like in the office? What's the routine? Well, the, the booking committee had a really large conference room up on the, I think we were on the 14th floor, 15th floor over at the Omni tower. Um, so when the booking committee was in session, kind of like when courts in session, everybody was really in that room. They, they weren't walking around socializing and chatting and 
talking up dirt sheet rumors or anything like that. You know, they were pretty much locked in and wouldn't come out till it was lunchtime. And then they'd come back and they'd stay there till five, six o'clock at night. And it was usually down to <laughs> one of the local taverns <laughs> and, and, and it would probably finish up there by eight or nine o'clock at night. I mean, that was typical. Um, but it was irregular because keep in mind, you know, Rick didn't live in Atlanta, neither did anybody else on the booking committee, if you can believe that. So everybody was flying in. And of course, we try to fly everybody in so that it worked around television and everything else we were doing. So while the booking committee was in session, so to speak, it was over a two or three day period. And like I said, they would come in at 10 o'clock in the morning, generally, and stay till six or eight o'clock at night. Talk to me a little bit about what you recall as, as being like Rick's strong suit. You know, we hear, you know, I've heard people refer to Arn Anderson and Michael Hayes as being two of the best finished guys in the business. And so we hear phrases like that thrown around. Did Rick have a strong suit where you look back and say, boy, if we ever need an, an idea for blank, Rick always had the answer. I don't look at Rick that way. You know, and I don't know that anybody's the answer person, you know, no matter how good anybody is at what they do, you know, something as complex as, as wrestling and, and the stories and the characters and the finishes and all that goes into it. It's, there's enough moving pieces there that you really do need to have three or four people to, to craft a good product. And the way I look at Rick, I mean, if it was today, you know, if Rick was excited and I was excited and the conditions were perfect, you know, I would look at Rick, not so much, I wouldn't look to Rick to come up with the good idea. I would look at Rick to take an idea that we've come up with and make it better, find the holes in it from a psychology point of view, really think it through from the character's perspective, um, both characters in a story, and really help us refine the story based on his feel for psychology. And to answer your question, of course, we know what he's capable of doing in the ring. We've watched him do it now for decades. But I think what Rick really understands as much, or maybe more, is the psychology that goes into why he does some of the things he does uh, in the ring or when he did them. Let's talk about something that you guys did after the Vader feud. Uh, after that starcade, you know, he's the head of the booking committee as we roll through 94. And one of the things that winds up happening, perhaps as a result, and I want your feedback on this is we see a rekindling of a little professional feud with Ricky steamboat. Those guys had absolutely phenomenal matches in the late seventies and early eighties that for whatever reason, we don't get to go back and revisit very often through videotape, but their series in 89 is a series of matches. People still talk about to this day. So it seemed like a no brainer that you make it happen again here for spring stampede 94, but it does feel a little bit like, uh, why is Ricky steamboat here? Cause he hadn't been positioned that way. Really. He'd been a, more of a tag team guy in WCW, but he did have natural chemistry with Ric Flair. Is that a decision or an idea from someone else or to Rick campaign to be back there with steamboat? No, I think, you know, when you've got Rick and Arn you know, on the same booking committee and Mike Graham and people that were really familiar with the history and, and kind of lived it firsthand between Ricky and, and Rick. Um, I think it's only natural, you know, people do that. You go back to what, you know, you go back to things that you're familiar with, particularly when you're under pressure, creatively under pressure. 
Uh, you want to go back to the things that you, you can more or less depend on. And you know that you're going to have to change the story up a little bit. You know that the situation is different. The conditions are different. But still, you're working with something that you feel very confident in because you've seen it work before. So I, I would imagine uh, Rick didn't have too much trouble getting you know a lot of support around him to bring Ricky in. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure everybody was very much for it. The uh, finish of that match is one that people still talk about. We'll revisit that show. Uh, I'm sure later this year, as we approach the 25 year anniversary, which is just crazy to think about, but I do want to ask about the unification that you did with the big gold belt, which was the NWA international title, uh, the former NWA world title. And now the new one that Reggie parks made when Rick, you know, took his ball and went North. You unify it at a clash of the champions. So sting has one belt flair has the other, uh, what was the, the strategy and the thinking and let's combine the belts. Likely just to eliminate confusion. I mean, when you have, when you have so many belts that don't really have any real meaning anymore, you know, the belt used to, when I grew up watching wrestling as a kid, even into my early teens. You know, the belt inferred and suggested a lot of money and a lot of prestige. And now there's no relationship to money and belts. Belts are just, I hate to say it, props. They're, they're, certainly they're symbolic and the fact that you, you, the, the company gives you with that, that belt or you win that belt under the company's direction that says a lot about their confidence in you as a professional and where they think your career is going and all that. So I'm not minimizing it whatsoever. It's just as meaningful to the talent, but to the viewer, it's just confusing. There's just too many belts and they don't really have any true meaning. They don't really represent anything. You can't identify one uh, unique thing about a belt than, than, you can from another, you know, aside from the look of the belt. So the idea was just to simplify it. And I think, you know, people should probably take a look at that about once every three or four years, just kind of take an inventory or an audit and say, okay, how many belts do we have? And what do they all mean? And maybe we should just condense them a little bit, just as a way to give the belts that you do have more meaning and more symbolism. That match is the match where Flair becomes a heel again. He's the baby face, especially after the, the big win in Charlotte at Starcade. But now here in the unification with sting, uh, Sherry is going to join him as his manager and it's going to be a nasty turn. And now he's a bad guy. And Hulk Hogan is there to make the save for sting. And that feels sort of natural because you you know where you're trying to get to. You're trying to get to Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair at bash at the beach. Which we've covered in the archives over at 83weeks.com. The biggest show at that point in WCW history, it exceeded all expectations. Lots of people thought it was fool's gold to go sign Hulk Hogan. Eric saw the writing on the wall and realized it takes a bold move like this and it paid off. And that is a phenomenal story. If you haven't heard it, it's in the archives at 83weeks.com. But I do want to mention that this heel turn here is not just for that timing, but it does sort of feel more natural and some guys are just better suited one way or another. It's almost a given that flair preferred to be the heel world champion as opposed to the baby face champ, right? He much preferred being a heel. He was really, really uncomfortable as a baby face. So I never really understood it. And at first it, well, I mean, I understood it on paper, I guess, but I didn't really thoroughly understand it till 
I started spending a lot more time on the creative side of things and in working with talent. And Rick loved being a heel because being a heel, he was in control of the match most of the time, almost all the time. He was calling the match. And, of course, he's going to be more comfortable in, in that type of role. Uh, so he always wanted to be, you know, the heel. I, on the other hand, you know, was looking at, you know, the wrestling fans didn't, I mean, they loved Rick. They even looked, I mean, back in 94, he was still relatively young back then. They loved him because he had been around so, so long. And it's, it's really hard. I used to say this jokingly, you know, Rick Flair could come out to the ring, his robe, set puppies on fire and then stomp them out on the way to the ring as part of his ring entrance. And people still stand in charm. I mean, he just—it was really hard keeping him a heel, but that's where that's where he was most comfortable as a performer. Well, and, and from there, the stage is set. The biggest show in WCW history, Bash at the Beach '93. You guys do a big press conference. You get Ted Turner involved. It's a star-studded event. We've covered it in painstaking detail. So, if you want to hear more about that, please do go check out that show. It's an underrated. It's a sleeper episode. 83weeks.com. But you see a rematch that maybe people don't talk about clash of the champions in August over in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I can't believe that's where it happened, but it did Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair did business that Meltzer would say, saying it did huge business would be an understatement. It broke several records, including the most widely viewed pro wrestling match ever on cable television, 4.1 million households. The old record was 3.8 back in September of 90 for sting versus the black scorpion and Ric Flair versus Lex Luger. It's the largest viewing audience for any match in NWA or WCW's modern history. And it's the seventh highest rated television main event in modern pro wrestling history. The only stuff that beat it was mostly during the rock and wrestling era. Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, the sting scorpion main event, uh, that did a 6.8 but this gets a 6.7 and an 11.3 share. It's gigantic. And Flair gets the win by count out over Hogan in 14 minutes and 27 seconds. We haven't really talked about this show before. Maybe we will this summer. Chat me up though, a rematch and doing it on clash of the champions. What was the strategy? And did anybody have an issue? You know, this is a silly thing to ask. I know, and you're going to laugh at it, but. Once upon a time, wins and losses mattered a little more than maybe they do now in wrestling. Did anybody have an issue with losing on TV as opposed to pay-per-view? None whatsoever. And, and the logic behind it, you keep in mind, Turner Broadcasting was first and foremost a television company. They're now a pay-per-view company. And, of course, they like the pay-per-view business because it was a, at least 25 or 35% of the revenue. But... When it came to should we do this on television or should we do this on save it for pay-per-view, hands down, everybody that got a chance to vote inside of Turner Broadcasting would vote to put it on television. From Brad Siegel to Jeff Carr to Brian Burke, you name it, whoever whoever was in the room and had, had the right to vote would vote to put it on television because that's what they wanted. They wanted more exposure for their network. They wanted more traffic. They wanted more exposure for WCW which is why they gave us prime time for the clash on TBS. So they were thrilled to death and obviously thrilled with the ratings. Well, coming out of that, you know, you look to say, all right, we've got our biggest ratings ever from putting it on TV. We've got our biggest pay-per-view number ever from putting it on pay-per-view. Let's go back to the well one more time. And you would at Halloween Havoc 94. And this time Rick puts his career on the line. So it's a retirement match 
chat me up. Was Rick nervous about, I mean, and let's put this in perspective. This is 1994, not 2008. We're a long way from his actual retirement, but Hogan, of course, is going to win. Flair loses a retirement match. And in the match, there's a lot of shenanigans where, uh, there's lots of outside interference, including Sherry, but a masked man who winds up being the butcher. And that sets up Brutus beefcake against Hulk Hogan at Starcade at the main event. Was Rick hesitant to be involved in a retirement match? And how was that process to navigate with him? That was tough. And Rick, Rick was not happy about it at all. And I'm going to tread very carefully and very respectfully here. Um, Rick, first of all, Rick was however old he was at that time, 48, 49, I'm guessing somewhere in there. Now we look, we look at Rick now and we, you know, we go back, we go, wow, Rick in 1994, he was at the top of his game. He might not have been in his prime, but he wasn't far off. Right. But back then, you know, when you, when you hit 40, 45 years old, you're constantly hearing that vibe all around you. You know, we need more younger guys. We need younger guys. We need younger guys. And Rick was hearing that a lot. Um, so he was sensitive to the idea of, of getting retired early. And I think in his mind, he didn't really trust me. He didn't really trust Turner Broadcasting. Uh, he didn't really trust Bill Shaw. Because all of us tried to convince Rick that this indeed is a, a retirement match, but you know we extended his contract to make to, to just to make sure you know that Rick knew going into that match that he was indeed going to be a Turner, Turner Broadcasting for a long time. And Rick was actually afraid that he was going to go through this t- retirement match and end up not having a job. So we had to go to some pretty extraordinary lengths to get him comfortable. Well, it's weird because afterwards, you know, he's, he's, I believe led to believe that he's going to be taking an extended amount of time off, but that doesn't actually wind up being the case. What was flair as far as your recollection, what was he supposed to be doing while he was quote unquote retired? I mean, there's no way I can answer that Conrad. And as you know, I, I know nobody wants to hear me say, I don't recall, but this is kind of a perfect example of in Rick's mind, I guess he was told he was going to get some time off, but I wasn't a part of that conversation. So I don't know what Rick was thinking or why he was thinking it or who said what to Rick. So I can't really comment on that. You know, my, my recall on the deal was because I was instrumental in getting Bill Shaw, convincing Bill Shaw to extend Rick's contract because this contract wasn't due. Uh, it, it wasn't imminent during the time of this particular pay-per-view. So it wasn't like, well, we got to hurry up and get this this contract done, or Rick's going to be, you know, he won't have one. It was Rick wanting us to renew his deal and extend his deal in order for him to feel comfortable doing this match. Now, as far as what happened after that, in terms of what Rick thought he was going to do and didn't do, you know, I, I really wasn't hands on on that. Well, here's the expectation. Rick wrote, I contacted Eric. Here's the deal. I'm willing to lose, but not ready to retire. You won't, he promised. You'll be out for at least a year just to make it look legit, but you'll work in the office, then we'll bring you back. End quote. I was a little worried. I've been with the company for about a year and my contract hadn't been extended. Everyone told me that it don't happen very soon, but it didn't have anything on paper. Later, I was accused of holding the company up because I refused to lose the retirement match until I had a contract. 
but I needed to know that I still had a job. So I stood my ground to the very end until Bill Shaw arrived at Halloween Havoc with my contract in hand. I looked it over, signed my name and went out and lost to Hogan in the cage. The one-year deal made me uncomfortable, but I kept telling myself that I had nothing to be concerned about. Think about it. I helped Bischoff get his job, recruited Hulk Hogan, allowed him to win the championship, then lost a retirement match. I just assumed that Eric would take care of someone like that. He had to, I reassured myself. There was no way he would screw me. So he sort of led to believe that, okay, he's not going to really retire. He's going to work in the office for a year. But Super Brawl 5, he's back in February, and he interferes in the Hulk Hogan-Vader world title match, and he starts working more as Vader's manager. And there's some silly stuff here along the way that would even include Ric Flair in drag. Do you remember how the Ric Flair in drag idea came to be? I, I wish I did. I wish I would have been there. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when that whole thing got laid out. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. And I, I guarantee you, I can't remember the name of that little bar down in the atrium at CNN center, uh, jocks and Jill's, but I would, I would, I'd venture to bet a lot that that idea probably took place somewhere between six o'clock and eight 30 in the evening down at jocks and Jill's. Well, they, uh, Ric Flair and drag moment. If you'd like to see it, which is pretty hilarious is the uncensored pay-per-view from 1995 in Tupelo, Mississippi. It's actually, uh, during the Randy Savage avalanche match, which is pretty silly. And, uh, he inserted himself in that main event as well with, uh, Hogan invader in a strap match. I want to touch on this because we've, we've been asked about this a lot and, and we haven't done a full show on it, but he's gone, he's come out and talked about it a little bit. April 28th, 190,000 fans in North Korea, uh, North Korea. Easy for me to say, uh, Rick loses a match to Antonio Inoki. And it's the first time those guys ever wrestled each other, but wow, North Korea, 190,000 fans. Give us the cliff notes version of uh, Rick Flair's experience in North Korea. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rick was slightly reluctant. He was a little concerned about going over there, but for the most part, he was, he was pretty excited about it. Um, I don't know if he knew much about the politics at the time in North Korea. Not, not that a lot of us did mind you, but I don't think any of us really appreciated just how bizarre of a situation that we were inserting ourselves into. I know I didn't, you know, I was very naive. And wasn't really interested in doing a lot of research. I was more interested in just going over there. Um, but Rick was Rick was pretty cool about it. Um, he didn't really get nervous, outwardly nervous, like you can tell he was nervous until we got to the airport in Pyongyang, North Korea. When he, you know, we all got off the plane together, and of course it was kind of a big deal. Muhammad Ali was with us, and then we had a bunch of Japanese wrestlers. We had flown over from from Tokyo. And we got off the plane. The first thing that the government officials did was take all of our passports. You know, it doesn't happen anywhere else you go. When you go to a foreign country, they don't take your passport. You know, it's a very unnerving thing. And I, I, I remember I was startled because I didn't know that that was going to happen. There's not much you're going to be able to do about it at that point other than just go with the flow. But that, that kind of set the tone because once we realized that, wow, they've got our passports, we can't leave here. But we flew over here on one of their military transports. 
there's no commercial flights out of here. You know, our, our own embassy, there is no embassy here in North Korea, number one. And if, you know, we wanted to get help over here, they're not allowed in the country either. So it was pretty interesting. And that's when Rick started getting really nervous, when he started really noticing just how much control that they were putting, putting on us. Let's talk briefly about his relationship with the macho man. You know, he's gone on record as saying, you know, they needed somebody to help get the macho man over, you know, not, not that he needed help with his character or introducing himself to the crowd, but you've got to have a credible opponent for macho man to beat. And that was Ric Flair, same as it was for Hulk Hogan. Uh, they had a match though, at the great American bash where he and Randy tore the house down. They got four stars in the observer and Rick actually won, but I believe that may have been something you guys disagreed on because Meltzer would even report quote, Rick Flair and Eric Bischoff haven't seen eye to eye on several matters. And it appears Kevin Sullivan will end up as Booker among the disagreements are that Bischoff wants Flair in the office five days a week. And Flair has been unhappy about some of the direction the booking is going, which is out of his control. And quite frankly, his points appear to be valid. Two points in particular we've heard are that Flair wants to book television around the TV title matches. And with Renegade as champion, that makes it impossible because the few times they've tried to have him work matches longer than two minutes, it exposes him and rendered him less over. So Flair wants the belt back on Arn Anderson. So he can have a lot of TV title matches to fill up TV time. And the other point is that Flair is against the idea of putting Vader in the dungeon of doom. So. Eventually Kevin Sullivan officially replaces Rick as the head booker on July 5th. And there's lots of rumor and innuendo that maybe, uh, Rick was not as secure as he could have been in his position. What say you say the same thing I said at the beginning of this podcast It was a horrible position for a guy like Rick to be in. If you don't have really super thick skin, if you can't take it, that, that role, especially when you're working with your friends. And that was another reason why it was a mistake for us to suggest that Rick take the job and for Rick to take the job is because now he's on the booking committee and he's got to make decisions about people that he's close to Arn Anderson being one of them. Arn wasn't the only one. And that puts a lot of pressure on you. If you, if you overcompensate and you're a little harder on your friends or less, enthusiastic about giving them opportunities that others might feel they deserve because you, you don't want to appear to be, you know, playing favorites. You, you're, you're kind of working against yourself. If on the other hand, you are giving a lot of those spots and that, that spotlight to friends and people that everybody knows you love working with and you're close to, and that creates another kind of a problem. So it's a, it's a, just a unforgiving, no-win situation, and especially someone like Rick, who is a very sensitive guy. He wears his emotions on his shirt sleeve. And that 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 job was really getting to him. It got to him. The, the breaking point for me at this point was, uh, and this was the real tipping point, we had flown Rick in you know, for a booking committee, and everybody was in, and Rick said uh, to Janie, excuse me, I'll be right back. I'm going to go call Beth or whatever he was going to do. And he never came back. And we didn't know where he was. It took us hours to figure out he went back to Charlotte. But I think the pressure got to him in such a way that he just didn't want to do it anymore. I, he just couldn't do it. He was in too tough a spot. Well, the uh, the hits would keep coming for Nature Boy. You guys had the outdoor bash at the beach. 
uh, show that year and Randy Savage wins with an elbow drop off the top. And now we're going to set up a clash of the champions with Ric Flair and Arn Anderson teaming up to take on Vader and Vader beats them both clean at the same time. And around this same time, we see a press conference held in New York city at the Harley Davidson cafe, where we're going to announce nitro is going to be coming to town. And this is the, the creation of your baby. And the, really the reason this show is even named 83 weeks, it's all about nitro and you guys have Hulk Hogan there and you have the macho man there and you have sting there, but you don't have Ric Flair. Had Ric Flair fallen out of favor with you and had you lost confidence in him? Because I think from the outside, when you see him and Arn lose a handicap match against Vader, and then he's not at this Harley Davidson cafe press conference. If you were a conspiracy theorist or trying to read into something, you could say, boy, what did Rick do? It's a valid question. The, the, the answer to, to the question is, did he fall out of favor with me or anybody else? I'll just speak for myself. I won't speak for anybody else. He didn't with me uh, as to, you know, why wasn't he included? That's a good question and a valid one. It, in all likelihood, we were in New York. We, we really felt like Hogan Savage was going to get us the kind of press that we needed. And we didn't really need a whole lot more support than that. Um, and that was the logic behind it. There was, but it had nothing to do with you know losing favor or confidence or being angry or anything like that. Well, you guys certainly had confidence in him when it came to, you know, when the red lights on, because the first nitro, which we've covered in our archives is flair and sting, which was a marquee match for many years for this company. But what I want to talk about, and I'm sure we'll cover this eventually as well here on the show in long form is fall brawl, because that's really what the first nitro helped us build towards September 17th in Asheville, North Carolina. We're in the Carolinas and we see something we never thought we would see Arn Anderson wrestling Ric Flair in a singles match. Uh, do you remember how that match came to be and why the decision was made to have Arn Anderson get the win? I don't, I don't, I'd have to go back and I really, first of all, I'd have to go back and look at that match and it would be a fun match to go back and watch. And I will, but in terms of how that all came to be, I, you know, I, I really wasn't involved in it enough to, to recall any of the details of that. It's a, it's a fun time and I'm sure we'll cover it for an anniversary soon, but the idea that it happened in the Carolinas as well, it made it all that more special and that Arn got the win and it clearly meant a lot to Arn. Arn's even gone on record as saying after he did his pre-match promo, he went to the trash can and threw up. He's not only wrestling his best friend, but the best wrestler, not only in the promotion, but arguably ever. And you're doing it in the Carolinas. It's a big time opportunity for Arn, and uh, he made the most of it. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little later. I do want to talk about Brian Pillman because it always seemed like, uh, Rick was campaigning for Brian and a big fan of Brian's and eventually he becomes involved and he becomes a horseman. What was the relationship like between Rick and Brian as best you recall? I know, um, Rick had a ton of respect for Brian. And I think it goes to, you know, Brian played, played in the NFL. You know, Rick, Rick, I think, has still to this day 
I don't want to say a soft spot, but a certain a different level of respect for guys who were amateur athletes and certainly professional athletes before getting into the wrestling business. Um, and, and because of that, and probably because of Brian's personality, Brian was a fun guy to hang around. Brian, Brian could be, you know, he could be the life of the party too. So I'm sure Rick enjoyed his company, enjoyed being around him, but more, more than anything, I just, he, he really respected his work and, you know, the fact that he was, you know, a professional athlete before even breaking into the business. One of the next big things that we see happen, of course, is Halloween Havoc, where Sting and Ric Flair are going to team up to take on Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. You probably already know what happened just based on me laying it out. Uh, Sting is uh, the victim again. Ric Flair turns on him. Horseman beat down. It's probably the 300th time it's happened, but it's still a great story. And this leads to reforming the Horseman. Eventually, the fourth member with Arn and uh, Rick and, and Brian Pillman would be Chris Benoit. Do you remember if anybody else was considered or was Rick pushing for Benoit or what do you recall? No, Rick, Rick was really pushing for Benoit. Uh, and, and by the way, it's pretty perfect casting. Yeah. If, if you look at it, I mean, could you, could you possibly come up with a better cast of characters for the four horsemen in that era at that time? than the four we just talked about. So it was a good choice by Rick, but it was really Rick's choice. Starcade that year would be a triangle match where we would have sting and Lex Luger, uh, in the main event with Rick flair there. And Rick's going to come away the winner Starcade 95, which we covered in the archives, uh, not too terribly long ago at 83 weeks.com. And then as we sort of fast forward, uh, to the end of the night, flair beat savage there. And, and that's where we get all the blood and the big finish, all that again is, is in the archives, but it doesn't last long because just like a month later, uh, macho would beat Rick to regain the world title. And that sets up a clash of the champions. And this feels like it's from a different era. Almost it's Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, the mega powers from 1988. Uh, they lose to Ric Flair and the giant when Flair would pin Savage after knocking him out with some brass knocks. And uh, a week later, Rick would beat Hulk Hogan for the first time after hitting him with Elizabeth shoe. So uh, Hogan's been in the company now since 94 and we're into 96 before Rick ever gets a win. What was the, the thinking in keeping Hulk look strong or not returning the favor to Rick or whatever sort of cliches we want to throw there? It was strictly business. You know, when, when we do these shows and oftentimes we'll start out, we'll set the show up by talking about what the financial landscape was looking like on a, on a particular show that we're covering. You know, what it was like, you know, a year ago, a year to date, a year earlier, you know, what it was like now. Our business was, go- our business was growing. We were finally seeing upward trends. We were starting to see things happen. We got a new show on in prime time. Things were going our way. So sometimes when things go your way, the tendency is let's let's not fuck it up. <laughs> and that was pretty much the tendency. There was no it wasn't about doing the favor, which is inside terminology. Sure. It's it's just it was just strictly business. 
Well, it was business, uh, later at the pay-per-view super brawl, which is not too terribly long after we see flair win the world title back from Randy Savage. They're really playing hot potato with it. It happened in St. Petersburg, Florida too. Um, and then, you know, the, the much talked about crazy uncensored two guys against 4,000, which I can't wait for us to talk about in long form and uncensored. And of course, flair is one of those as well. Uh, but that is a whole nother show for another time for sure. Let's fast forward a little bit and talk about the decision to have Mongo become a four horseman, because I think a lot of people look at Steve McMichael and say, boy, he did not belong as a horseman, but Rick would argue that and say, no, he fit right in with the guys, maybe not bell to bell or in the ring, but in terms of being one of the guys, uh, very much so. What do you remember about the decision to put Mongo in the horseman? I remember Rick being really excited about it. And Mongo did. Now, granted, and, and this is where, you know, the the Dave Meltzer fans <laughs> or readers or whatever they are around the country are gonna lose their they're gonna lose their shit when they hear what I'm about to say. But when you're done, you know, letting your head spin off its shoulders, just try to look at it from a different point of view other than a dirt sheet point of view. Steve McMichael, he was not a trained wrestler. He didn't go to camp. He learned a few moves here and there. He spent some time in a power plant. He knew just enough to to probably hurt himself or somebody else. Um, but he was a hell of a character, and he could cut a hell of a promo. Now, sometimes he got a little off track. He was green at that, too. But he, at times, he could be really effective on the mic. But I think more than anything, there was a collegial kind of vibe to it all. And again, I think the way that Rick looked at a, you know, an NFL Super Bowl champion, you know, that happens to be, you know, one of his four horsemen. I think, I think Rick liked that credibility and was willing to, to look, you know, past what McMichael didn't have in order to take advantage of what he did, which was credibility and notoriety. Eventually we would see Rick lose the world title to the giant and not too terribly long after that, you guys decide to let him win the United States championship. He beat Conan for that at the bash of the beach on July 7th in Daytona beach. And Rick was sort of not digging the idea of no longer being in the world title picture. And he even wrote in his book once when I questioned why he was having me lose to Conan, he shouted at me in a dressing room hallway. Why are you always complaining about something? Just fucking do what we write down. This is a team. This isn't about you anymore, Rick. Things started to, when did the, when was the, the bloom off the rose for you two? Was it 96? Yeah. I mean, it started in 96. Safe to say it. Yeah. When, when the NWO hit, when things started really rolling, is really when the wheels started falling off our relationship, so to speak. And the NWO thing really took off. Obviously, um, Rick would, would, would win the, uh, the United States title from Conan in July in August, he would wrestle Eddie Guerrero for that U S title and he would retain, uh, he would challenge uh, Hulk Hogan for the world title at the clash of the champions. And he would win by DQ. So Hogan would retain the world title, which at this point was spray painted. And that got us to fall brawl 96, where it's Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Lex Luger, and who we hope is sting 
taking on the NWOs, Hogan, Hall, Nash, and the NWO sting. And this of course is going to be the birth of the crow angle. Um, this is a pretty hot show. And I, I think it's one of the more important shows in WCW history because it really was, was well done and you get lots of stuff spinning off of it, including the crow angle that's going to go through December of 97 where the big payoff and obviously continues past that. But I mean, just an incredible way to really jumpstart it was did flair sort of get or see or understand the concept of where you were going with the NWO here at fall brawl 96. To the extent that we did, he did. Sure. <laughs> it was still so new to us. You know, it, 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 it's not like we had, and I wish, you know, I was smart enough and we all were together as a team would have been smart enough, you know, to have a, an entire story Bible where we had, you know, week to week, we had how the story was going to evolve and what the twists and turns were going to be as we, as we went on, but we weren't operating that way. We had no idea that the NWO was going to be as hot as it was. We knew it was going to be pretty good, but we, we just didn't realize the way the audience was going to react to that. And I think what was probably more common in the locker room at that time was not so much jealousy, and there's a lot of that, and there still is to this day. You know, I mean, people can people can pretend it doesn't exist anymore, but it still does. It's just that people don't talk about it as much because there's only one place to work. Can't afford to talk too much nowadays. But back then, there was a lot of you know everybody wanted they wanted the spot, they wanted the spotlight, you know, they wanted the attention. It's understandable. It's the nature of the beast. That's why the performers. It wasn't as much of that as it was everybody was just so unnerved, I think is the best way to say it, because all of a sudden now these badass heels, they were they were positioned as heels when I brought them in, were getting over as baby faces. And that really put a lot of WCW guys kind of on their heels because it just turned everything upside down for them. Just screwed up. I mean, just the way they worked, you know, it just – it changed a lot of things. And I think there was three, four, five, six months before people started getting pretty comfortable with, with the way we were doing things. But during that period of time, there were a lot of guys nervous about it and just insecure in general. And I think Rick was one of them, not, not insecure about himself or his abilities, but just insecure about where the business was going. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the rotator cuff surgery, because Right after that fall brawl, he's probably supposed to do it, but he puts it off a little bit because he's going to go do a, um, a tour of Japan. And then when he gets back, it's scheduled for early October. It winds up happening in late October. He's going to miss a little bit of time here. And what you guys have him do is still make appearances, but he's in Jeff Jarrett's corner. Lots of people debate this. Did you consider Jeff Jarrett a horseman? Why was Rick in his corner was Rick for it. Whose idea was it? Chat me up about the Jared. I think Flair. It, it was just it, there's you know there's no grand you know scheme. There's no grand plan. Um, there's nothing nefarious about it. It was just we need something for Rick to do. We got to get Jeff over. Let's try to see if we can you know if one plus one can equal two and a half or three. That's really always behind it. We want to use Rick. We want to keep him out there. We want to keep him visible. We're trying to get Jeff over. Rick can't work. Maybe this will make sense. 
he gets involved physically, uh, in April, uh, and it sets up the slam show in May, which is going to be Flair and Piper and Kevin green taking on Scott Hall, Kevin Nash and six. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of meat on the bone for us to talk about that, uh, in long form some other time, but he's sort of used in a similar way here, teaming with Roddy and they continue that trend for the great American bash this time in Moline in Illinois. And, and I think that's maybe where there's been much about much made about what happened after when the cameras weren't there instead of the actual match, it's probably not the spot that Rick wanted to be in, to be in a tag match here, but he probably enjoyed, uh, working with his old pal, Roddy, right? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, Rick, Rick, Rick would light up like a little kid at Christmas time when Roddy would walk into an arena. I mean, th- those two, those two guys loved each other and it was pretty obvious. They had a long, colorful and storied history. The road wild show would be flair pinning six in about 11 minutes. That's of course, one of those Sturgis shows. Uh, but the big thing that happened late that summer is the retirement speech from Arn Anderson. It's made clear that Jeff Jarrett's no longer a horseman. They're going to recruit, uh, Kurt to join the club. And Arn does a retirement speech that a lot of people still talk about, you know, my spot, you know, cause lots of horsemen had moved and, you know, Barry Windham and the Lex Lugers and the Paul Romas and the Pillmans and the Benoit's, but Rick and Arn were always there and now Arn could no longer compete. So he's going to hang it up. And, um, the decision is made to then turn that into an angle where the NWO sort of mocks it. And that sets up fall brawl. I'm sure we'll talk about it in, in longer form from Arn and Nash's perspective, but how did Rick react to the retirement speech? Cause he was obviously a waterwork show on television. But then more importantly, what did he think and what did he know ahead of time about the NWO parody of it? I can't speak to what he knew ahead of time. Uh, You'd have to ask Rick about that. I can tell you, because I can picture Rick after that speech or after the parody, he was hot. I mean, his feelings were hurt. He was angry. Um, All of the above. uh, To to a large, to the nth degree. I mean, he was really upset about it. And I've said this before, you know, I did the, I did when you had the podcast with Ric Flair, I did the show with you guys and we talked about this, you know, there's a, there's a few things I'd like to take back that, that being one of them. Um, but at the time it just, it, 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 you know, at the time I'm thinking, wait a minute, this, this isn't real. This is what we produce television for a living. This is what we do. And this storyline works. You know, creatively on paper, it works. And it did. It was great television. Arn's performance was great television. The parody was great television for what it was trying to achieve. And it did achieve it. Unfortunately, because the people involved were facing some, you know, career-ending situations. You know, Arn, certainly with the surgery that he had on his hand, he never did regain full use of his hand. Um, That was a big deal to him. And I didn't see it. I didn't recognize it. I would today. I'd be more aware of it today just because you get older, you figure shit out. Right. But back then I, I just didn't see it. I didn't see, I understand why everybody was so upset about it. You know, it's what we did. Let's talk about fall brawl. Uh, it's NWO versus the horseman. Kurt's going to turn They're in Winston Salem. Uh, years later, Rick would be very critical of this and say that it killed the town. Um, uh, but 
it was legit. It was really, really white hot heat because they slam Rick's head in the cage and, uh, flair actually takes time to get a facelift, uh, and then comes back a month later in Minneapolis at the time. Did you think that, uh, this was a, a bad idea or maybe it was a misstep or did it just seem like business as usual? Well, it certainly wasn't business as usual. It was intense. We knew that. Well, we were looking for heat. That's what we were looking for. Yeah, I can understand from Rick's point of view and from Rick Flair, you know, fans of Rick's and old NWA fans and longtime WCW fans, you know, to them, it was probably a horrible mistake, but kind of based on the success of what we did, I think in retrospect, we could argue that it didn't. It, it made business stronger. We needed heat. And so one thing that's lacking today is real heat. And we needed that. It's a lot easier to get baby faces over when you've got real heat. You've got real heels. When you don't have real heat, you don't have real heels, it makes it that much harder. So we were doing everything that we could to book heat. Well, there was heat a week after he returned to Minneapolis because the next week is when you hold the meeting with all the boys and say the only guys who've ever drawn any money are Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, and Randy Savage. We've talked about that before. And obviously Rick took it very personally and, uh, the relationship just continues to sort of spiral a little bit between you two Halloween havoc. We finally get this Kurt versus flare match. It's okay, but probably a bit of a disappointment. They do it again at world war three, probably more of the same. I don't think people, uh, were really expecting Mr. Perfect anymore, but these matches weren't nearly, I don't think as good as what people may have originally hoped. Uh, Kurt would get a, uh, a win over Ric Flair at world war three. And supposedly the third match was supposed to happen at Starcade, but Rick hurts his ankle. So he's out of the match, uh, but he does get good news because he signs a new three-year deal. You guys are a little contentious here in late 97. What's that negotiation process like when he signs on for another three years? It really wasn't, it wasn't difficult. It was, it really was kind of matter of fact. We knew we were going to keep him. He knew he wanted to stay. There wasn't, there wasn't much really to negotiate in his deal. His deal was very straightforward. Um, there were going to be no changes to it really. So it, it was an easy process. I think we were both kind of tired <laughs> beating each other up. Well, you weren't tired, uh, coming up with fun stuff for Rick to do. We've just covered recently the sold out 1998 show where he would wrestle Bret Hart and how we got there and sort of what both people thought of the match that's available in the archives at 83 weeks.com. And we've also covered, you know, Eric versus Rick and Bischoff versus flair, the whole fallout that happened in early 98 and how that whole process spanned, uh, until he returned on the September 14th nitro. If you'd like to see that episode, which is still one of our most downloaded, most enjoyed episodes ever. It's available now at 83weeks.com. But the big return, man, September 14th, 1998, and we've covered it. What a special moment it was for TV. It gets a 5.4 rating, easily the highest rating of the night. Uh, head to head with Raw, it'll Raw only got a 3.8. Were you a little, I mean, obviously, you guys have been not in a good place but not seeing the magic happen because it was a magical segment and you didn't have to see the ratings to know that, Hey, this was awesome. But when you see the ratings as well, you had to feel pretty good about the decision to get flair back on the squad. Right. 
there was never any doubt. You know, I never for once didn't think that Rick had enormous value. Now, Rick probably didn't believe that or, or, or have a sense that I felt that way. Uh, but it, I never, ever once thought, you know, we really don't need Ric Flair or he's really not as, as valuable as he thinks he is. That, that thought never crossed my mind. So I knew he was important. That's why we kept going to the well with him. That's why he was so dependable and predictable in terms of the outcome. Because we knew if we put Rick in a main event spot, he was always going to deliver. Um, and I always felt that way about him. But, you know, I, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to know how Rick felt at that point. I think he's probably covered it in his book pretty good. The, uh, the fun continues with other things that we've already covered here on the show. I think we've talked about the heart attack angle and whether that should or shouldn't have happened. We also covered Bischoff and flair at Starcade, uh, 1998, which is pretty crazy that happened. But most famously is the promo the very next day on nitro where he strips down all of his clothes and just cuts one of the more memorable nitro moments of all time. And then the rematch where he gets his win back over you and becomes the president of WCW. And as a result, we see David flair introduced and we've touched on that a little bit. Uh, the feud really gets kicked off, uh, with Hogan when Hogan beats David with a belt and, um, they would there would be some hurt feelings over that, uh, that super brawl show in particular, Hogan would, would retain the world title over flair. Um, what's the relationship like here during all of this, where Flair's really a fish out of water at this point, because, you know, he hasn't been on good terms with you. And when he left, he wasn't necessarily on top, but now he's back and he's in sort of a prime storyline, but it's not really probably the way he'd want to be. Cause he's wrestling you and not a real, traditional starcade main event style that he's really probably grown accustomed to. And now it's more storyline and less hard hitting traditional wrestling. But then he finds himself with Hogan, which is obviously the big spot, but his son's here, which makes it rather unique. And whereas Rick can be an emotional being on his own with, you know, the sun sliding into the spot that probably complicated things a little bit. So how did that affect the relationship with you and Hogan and Rick and, or did it at all? It didn't, it, it, it really didn't. Now I, you know, I know the, the, the issue with the wealth, the, the, the weight belt and all that probably hit a couple of raw nerves, no pun intended, but beyond that, just the day-to-day -day relationship and working relationship between everybody was fine. There was no issues because of David. The, uh, David, had a lot of, David had a lot of support. You know, David, again, you know, like any son of a wrestler, especially a real famous one like Rick, um, horrible position to be in, number one. You got sure. a lot to live up to, number, num number one. Number two, you know, you're getting an opportunity that a lot of people think you're probably not ready for. And a lot of those people would be right. But you're getting it anyway because of who you are. There's a lot of resentment that comes with that. And people don't just – it's not like they won't they – wouldn't. They wouldn't be rude to his face. They wouldn't have a you know chip on their shoulder in front of him. But you know when you leave the room, it's like people are shaking their heads. Oh my god, he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for his old man. That's a tough thing to have to live to live with. David did his you know David did his his best to keep his chin down and be one of the boys. And he wasn't looking for any favoritism. He wasn't looking 
looking to be treated any differently. He was a super, super polite and professional young man. We see a uh, an interesting match at Uncensored. It's a first blood barbed wire cage match where oh. Ric Flair beats Hulk Hogan. That's silly enough. I want to dedicate a whole show to it sometime. But either way, know this. Rick comes out as the champion. At Spring Stampede, though, he would lose the title in a four-way where Diamond Dallas Page would become champion for the first time. Any issue with uh, Rick losing the belt and DDP becoming the champion? Did, did Rick have anything to say negatively one way or another? I only ask that that way because, for better or worse, you have been, uh, it's been very public that you were friends with DDP and Maybe your relationship with Rick wasn't what it once was. Did he take issue with having to quote unquote, put over your buddy? He may have, it was subtle. He wasn't thrilled about it, but he, but he was super professional about it too. He did it. You know, Rick wasn't with the exception of the retirement match in Detroit, because Rick did stand his ground. You know what he wrote in his book. He's, he's telling the truth. Even even with the detail of Bill Shaw showing up with the contract in hand because we had to get it written up and Shaw brought it from Atlanta to Detroit so that Rick could sign it. Um, but with the with the exception of a couple moments like that, Rick Rick wasn't a, he, he didn't pout he didn't he didn't you know run around and stir shit up and try to get people to you know side with him and see things his way so they could kind of come in, in a group and confront you you know about their storyline rick wasn't like that um look we needed we needed new champions we needed to get new people over and rick was you know rick may hate this but he made a hell of a, he had a hell of a career being the best of the best at getting people over which is what i think any good heel should aspire to do right um, but you know, when it came to, when a time came to put that belt on page, yes, Rick had it, but I don't recall Rick really putting up too much of a fight or have, really having any issue at all. Uh, one of the things that, uh, people remember fondly about this era of WCW is the referee, Charles Robinson becoming little Nate. He's Rick Flair's assistant. Uh, whose idea was that? And how fun was that? It started out as kind of a rib started out, you know, because he was just such a huge Ric Flair fan and he was always around. He's such a great referee. And by the way, I want to throw a shout out to, to Charles. He's a, he's a good dude and he's fun to be around. Um, but he was such a huge Rick Mark or Ric Flair Mark that, uh, or fan, I should say, uh, that it just kind of evolved, you know, started out as a little bit of a rib and evolved into, you know, what it became. He's really having fun here wrestling Roddy Piper on pay-per-view. Piper would beat him by DQ and slam Bree, and then they would have a rematch where Flair would get a win by DQ uh, for the Great American Bash. Uh, not the best matches for sure. Uh, they even got dud ratings in the Observer, but still, uh, he's working with his buddy. I'm sure he had fun with that. Uh, he does have a, a match where um, he's injured. To the point where Meltzer says the latest on the flare situation is he was examined by his doctor who said, due to his back injury, he should take a month off. It's no secret that flare in the past has worked with injuries as, or more severe, but the company has killed his zest for wrestling over the past week. He even contemplated retiring and 
this is a time where the, the creative side of WCW is sort of topsy turvy. You know, he's, uh, no longer the president of WCW and that was fun for what it was, but he's really struggling with the creative and you probably are too, because September of 99, you're out of there. And then even though you weren't there in October, they have the filthy animals, bury him in a desert. He winds up going to an insane asylum. It's a weird time for WCW, but let's fast forward to when you return in April of 2000. Is it bygones be bygones with you and Rick? Have you guys hit the reset button? What's it like? Yeah, I think we did. I mean, look, after the uh, the match or a couple matches that he and I had together, we worked that storyline. We were fine. You know what I mean? It's not like he was carrying around, at least to my face. Now, he may still have disliked me or not respected me, but that wasn't apparent to me when, when we were together. Let's put it that way. Um, but he may tell you otherwise. Uh, but as far as I was concerned, uh, it, it's, you know, it's like water under the, it, it, like it happened yesterday. Once it's, it's gone, it's done, it's over, move on. You know? So I, I wasn't certainly not carrying any baggage around. I, I can't speak for Rick, but I wasn't. Let's talk a little bit about one of the angles you book right away is putting him with Shane Douglas. Shane had been cutting promos on him in ECW for years and years calling him Dick flair and challenging him. And now it looks like it's finally going to happen. Um, I guess we should mention, you know, he does some other stuff on the way there, tag title tournament and things like that. But the big match with Shane Douglas happens at Slamboree and they don't get a ton of time. They get about nine minutes or so, but it does feel like, uh, this should have been maybe a bigger deal than it was. Maybe it was just that way to sort of inside quote unquote, smart marks or the dirt sheets. But Shane gets a win here over Flair. Do you remember there being any problems with these guys once they were in the same company? Or was it just water under the bridge? It was water under the bridge. And again, I'm sure Rick has got his own point of view on that. I mean, he may have been feeling resentment or not not being too excited about this match with Shane. He may not have liked Shane. You know, I, I don't know. You'd have to ask Rick. From what I could tell and what I remember about that is it was, it was just it was another day at the office. There wasn't a lot of, you know, residual heat from things that have been said, you know, in the past. I think everybody pretty much just looked at it like, okay, this is now, now we're going to take that, that time and we're going to turn it into a storyline. We're going to have a great match. We're going to sell a good house. The kids started to get a little more involved after this. Uh, this is very much the, the Russo era on May 15th, Russo and David are at Flair's house in Charlotte and they're just explaining that David's been mistreated and the other kids have been, you know, handled much better. And he had to sleep in the garage and blah, blah, blah. What did you think of all this invasion of Flair's home and Russo and Daphne and David, were you for it? Do you think it was sort of silly? Did it have some legs and what did Rick think? Again, I don't know what Rick was thinking. I, I, my impression of it was that it was very lame. I understand. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't hard to understand what what Russo was trying to do, but it it wasn't the product. You know, the product is wrestling, and I know we've done. And I'm I was a big proponent of doing a lot of things in and around the arena, you know, to augment the action in the ring. But at the end of it all, 
you know, the stories have to take place inside of the ring because, you know, you're you're showing up with a couple of handheld cameras and some cheap audio gear and you're trying to shoot a scene that might that scene might work for a sophisticated television uh, series or if it was in a movie that 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 scene, if it was written well and, and, and cast well, might be kind of effective. But when you're doing it on a television budget, more importantly, you're presenting it presenting it to an audience who is accustomed and and wants to continue to be accustomed to getting their entertainment in the ring. And the length of those little mini movies and all of the things that, that Russo was so excited about doing was taking away from the product in the ring. And I think it was obvious to me then it became painfully more obvious as time went on. But that was, you know, I'd only been there for a couple of months and my goal at that point still was to try to get along, you know, and, and try to make the best of the situation and work with Russo as best as I could under the circumstances. But keep in mind, when Brad Siegel brought me back, and I, I can't I can't over explain just how significant that was and how difficult that was for him to do, as well as every other executive in Turner Broadcasting that was a part of sending me home in the first place. Because now they had to not only pay me, they had to pay me more and had to admit they shouldn't have really fired me in the first place. Anyway, when Brad brought me in, he said to me, Eric, this guy is too dark. I don't like what he's doing. I want you to watch over him. If you don't like what he's doing, change it. So I was given the authority and all the room I needed to make changes. But my intent when I got there and for the first few months was to try to find a way to make it work. So some of this stuff that was going on, eh, it wasn't my cup of tea. I didn't really like it, but I was still trying to learn Russo's style and trying to determine what potential he had, if any. Later that same night, Flair won the world title with an inside cradle over Jeff Jarrett. Fast forward a couple of weeks and, uh, Nash just gives the belt back to Flair because he says he never lost it. And later that night, Rick is defending the title against Jeff Jarrett, but David gives Jarrett the guitar and he gets the pin with Russo counting the fall. So Rick loses it, but under interesting circumstances, I can't believe this is real, but on the June 5th nitro Russo beat Ric Flair in a cage match. And that got us to the great American bash where Rick wrestled David with Rick's career on the line. And the whole family's here. Of course, Rick wins. Uh, it's an interesting time in WCW to say the least. Eventually, uh, well, the next night on nitro, in fact, Russo and David, uh, would beat Rick and his son Reed. That's right. The, the younger child. <laughs> And then they shave Rick's head. Um, gosh, this feels, uh, thrown together. Is that the right word? Oh, it's fucking horrible. I mean, it's just, by this point, the relationship at this point in June, and I remember that because it was right before my father passed away and I was in Wyoming on a weekend I was traveling back and forth a lot to Atlanta at the time. And I had just gotten back home, I think on a Thursday night, and I had had a couple conversations with Rousseau. And every conversation, you know, went further downhill. And I had made up my mind that weekend that there's just no way I was going to be able to work with this guy. I mean, with with Besh at the beach coming up, um, 
this was the point where I knew either he was going to go or I was going to go again. I didn't really care one way or the other, to be honest. There's a, uh, Russo throws a retirement party, uh, for Rick. And eventually of course, Rick comes out, gives David a low blow, puts Russo's face in the cake. And well, tonight on raw, it's Rick's 70th birthday. And if there's a cake, well, you figure it out. Uh, he has <laughs> shoulder surgery on July 7th for a torn rotator cuff, puts him out for a little bit. And by the time he comes back, you're gone. Um, his last appearance, of course, is the very last nitro. We, we sort of finished nitro the same way we started it. We've covered that art, that episode in the archives, March 26, 2001 sort of bookends for the nitro run flair and sting at one flair and sting sting at the last one. Uh, let's, let's run through some questions here and let's wrap this one up as we, we try to end on a more positive note than the silliness that was the end of WCW. Uh, Paul wants to know, did you notice any noticeable change in Flair's behavior around 99 and 01? He's written a lot that he lost a lot of confidence during that time. Could you tell from afar? Not especially not at that time, because I wasn't as close to Rick as I had been, you know, in the years before there was a period of time, I think probably 94, 95, when we were spending a lot of time down in Orlando and really Rick's family and my family would hang out together. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together socially away from wrestling. So at that point I would have probably been able to notice something differently, but by, you know, 9901, you know, my, my relationship with Rick was pretty distant, so I wouldn't have been able to read him at all. Adam wants to know how much of a say did Rick Flair have over who was, or wasn't named a horseman? A lot, you know, I mean, it was his baby. Who's gonna who's who's going to look Ric Flair in the eye and say no? You're wrong about that. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was his baby. Uh, Anthony wants to know, Eric, what's the wildest Flair story you can share on the podcast? I don't have any wild Flair stories. I feel like I'm the only one in the wrestling industry that's been in it for a while that that doesn't have a Ric Flair story. I I never saw him get, d- dance on a bar. I never saw him whip anything out that wasn't supposed to be out. <laughs> I I never saw any of that. Uh, Lee wants to know, what do you think Rick's biggest bar tab was when you guys were hanging out in WCW? Did you ever think what one of them was? I got stuck with it. It was over $5,000. Oh my gosh. No shit. We're at the, we're at the swan. It's a, uh, it's a restaurant instead of a, the swan hotel in Disney MGM. Beautiful, beautiful place. Got a nice sushi bar in there. And this was the same year, one of the years where I, I brought a bunch of the Japanese over. And Tony Inoki came over, Masasito and Baijo and all the, all everybody that was everybody from the New Japan office came over um, to the Disney MGM tapings. And I wanted to have, you know, the Japanese are such fantastic hosts and they'd always treated me very, very well whenever I went to, to Japan. So I wanted to, to return the favor. So I invited everybody over and I was going to, you know, have, have everybody over for dinner over at the sushi bar. And then wrestlers started showing up because the word got out. And then before you knew it, it was just, the doors were blown off. And at the end of the night, I'm sitting at the sushi bar with my wife and I'm getting ready to pay the tab. And the manager comes over and goes, Oh, Mr. Bischoff, <laughs> I need to give this to you. I said, well, what's that? 
He goes, it's Ric Flair's bar tab. I said, well, why are you giving it to me? He said, well, Rick left, and he said to give it to you. I said, oh, okay. So Rick's buying bottles of champagne and cocktails and sushi, and he's he's buying the house rounds, and I'm paying for it. So, I yeah, I got a, it was like $5,800 or something like that. So I had to put that on my expense report when I got back to Atlanta, and it raised a few eyebrows. It's like, what the hell? How much sushi do you eat, kid? <laughs> but I explained the situation, and it was fine. But, yeah, that was the – that was the one I got stuck with. Wow. Uh, Landon wants to know, Eric, what was your favorite Ric Flair match that you remember seeing? Mm. I mean, under my watch, I'd have to go Flair Hogan one just because of the significance of it all and, and what it meant for the company, you know, in terms of the overall, you know, just kind of iconic match quality Oh, you know, you're probably right. You're Ricky Steamboat, Ric Flair's. You know, Sting and Sting and Ric Flair had a lot of great matches too. And again, that's I mean, Sting or Rick got Sting over. I mean, Ric Flair put Sting on the map. And I, you know, when I say what's your favorite match, I look at those moments because they're kind of like big moments in wrestling history. Might not have been a you know Dave Meltzer four star match, but it it had a significant impact on the business. So that's to, that's it's probably what I would look at. Uh, here's a fun one. Um, because we, we, we love talking about promos here. Uh, Josh wants to know what's Eric's favorite Ric Flair promo. So the match maybe is a little more difficult to pick, but a promo, you've probably got one that jumps out. Well, only because we just got done talking about it a few minutes ago, but I think Ric Flair in his underwear handcuffing himself to a turnbuckle is about the funniest shit you're ever going to find on television. I'm talking any kind of television. That was some funny, entertaining, whack shit and i loved it and i'm sure there's probably a dozen more that are equally as entertaining um but i'd have to go back and look for them to jog my memory but that one because we just got done talking about it whether we were talking about it or not i think that has to go up in at least the top three uh bart wants to know do you remember uh a celebrity ever requesting to meet rick flair any interesting stories or names there you can share not really um this is an interesting question. I never even considered Jonathan wants to know, was Ric Flair ever considered by him or you, uh, as possibly joining the NWO? Was it ever mentioned that he might be a potential member? Never. Yeah. That, never. that doesn't seem like that fit, but you know, neither did VK wall street. So what do I know? Um, Flair said that, sorry, I couldn't help it. You know, you, see, you just had it. You couldn't get through a whole show without just taking a cheap shot. I had a fucking rough week. Okay. <laughs> uh, Chris wants to know, Flair said in his 30 for 30 that he would hit a piece of string until it didn't move to learn how to throw working punches. Did you ever think that Rick was stiff in the matches you guys worked together? God, no. God, no. It's It still amazes me when I look back. You know, and I've only had a few, I don't even like to call them matches because it's being disrespectful to people that actually have matches. I, I kind of look at the stuff I did as just a cool stunt more than anything else. Um, but when I think back at some of the stuff, you know, and I see things on videotape, you know, go to the WWE network and see something I did. And I'm always shocked when I think about it because you don't feel anything at all in the ring. Nothing. You feel less than nothing. 
In fact, the only thing that really that unnerved me the most about doing anything in the ring with with somebody that was actually good at it is because if you weren't paying close attention, you wouldn't know what to sell. You know what I mean? I mean, guys were that good. I've never worked with Chris Benoit, but I heard that Chris Benoit was one of the best at just delivering, you know, blows that looked like they were going to cut your guts out and cut you in half. And you can't even feel it. You know, I mean, I've been told that by others who have worked with him. So, um, and Rick was one of the best, but no, there was nothing. I never felt anything at all uh, working with Rick or Steve Austin or really anybody else except for Shane McMahon. I felt that. Glenn wants to know, did Eric ever try on one of Ric Flair's robes? <laughs> no, I'm not worthy. Uh, we get lots of questions about this. Joey wants to know, did Flair ever get reimbursed for his robes from WCW or were they just paid out of his pocket? Specifically the ones that they used at things like the nitro grill. I don't know. I don't know if that was part of Rick's deal or not. I have to go back and look at his deal. Uh, this is a question that we've never really, I've never even really considered Thomas writes, if you were able to close on the purchase of WCW and indeed start a relaunch, would Ric Flair have been involved and in what role? Yes, he would have been involved. What role is just too hypothetical. Um, he, he would have still been active as a performer. He probably would have been more, um, of a spokesperson for the company because Rick is really, really good at that, obviously. Um, but he still would have been an active wrestler beyond that. It would just be speculation. And Diana wants to know if you had to pick Rick with any combination of three horsemen, who would it be? If I had to put Rick with any combination of other horsemen, yep. so I'm creating a, a new four horsemen with Rick or yeah, we could do that. Or I was, I think he meant just any combination through history that he had, you know, Ole, Arn, Tully, Barry, Lex, Benoit, Pillman. I, I think, to me, when I think of it, and again, it's because of the impression that I got looking at old tapes and reading about things that happened before I even got to WCW. I would go back to the Ole, you know, Barry Windham, Tully days, because that seemed to me to be like the beginning of it all. Sure. Uh, Sean wants to know, and this is how I guess we'll wrap the show up as we, uh, celebrate Nate's 70th birthday. What was Eric's most memorable conversation he ever had with Ric Flair? Oh, you know, I, I think I really got to know Rick. I first, started, I first started really getting to know Rick during the process of bringing in Hulk. And we spent a lot of time together. And I just got to know him on a different level than I, than I had previously. Because Rick Flair, for those who haven't been around Rick, you know, if you're around him in a social setting, he's, he's, a, he's a social animal. I mean, he just he's a life of the party. He commands a presence in the room. But you never really get to have much of a conversation with him. Everything is kind of superficial and social. And those are the types of conversations that up until the Hogan effort, those are the types of conversations that I was having with Rick a lot. But in the process of trying to, to recruit Hulk, got to spend a lot more time with Rick and got to know him on a much personal level. So I think those are probably the conversations I had that I remember the most because it felt like I was really getting to know the guy. You know him 
personally, you know, him professionally We're celebrating his birthday today, but you can still be honest. What do you rank him all time? He's either one or two in my book. I mean, it's, t- it's, it's tight. You know, I, again, we talked about this. I don't remember the last time we talked about it. Maybe it was at the show we did this past weekend. You know, when you, when you look at the, you know, the Mount Rushmore, you know, again, for me, I look at it from, you know, what were the real pivot points in our industry and who were the people that were instrumental in those pivot points? You'd have to put Vince McMahon right at the front of that. There's just no denying that. Um, then I've, then I've got Hulk Hogan, uh, because of his role along with Vince, you know, back in the early eighties and how much that changed our industry. You got, you've got Rick Flair, you've got Steve Austin, you've got the rock, you know, you got a couple guys there that are neck and neck that all, all deserve to be up there, but for different reasons. Well, no doubt about it. One of the greatest of all time celebrating turning the big seven O today and we tried to pay him tribute as best we could and run through all you guys time together in WCW. I'm sure we'll talk about the days in TNA and the WWF another time, but most everybody is listening to this show because they want to hear about the days of world championship wrestling. And, uh, we hit it with some broad, stroke, broad strokes today. And we hope that, uh, Rick has a great birthday today and maybe gets to enjoy some cake tonight on raw until next time. He is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.